The Department of Justice makes its move, seeking relief with the Court of Appeals after Judge Eileen Cannon's order appointing a special master and granting the injunction Trump requested, essentially stalling the criminal investigation until the special master completes his work. The Trump organization is set to be a criminal defendant in Manhattan in October, and New York Attorney General Tish James at the same time looks ready to file a civil lawsuit against Trump, the Trump Organization, and other family members. It's going to be a busy month in New York with respect to Trump litigation and criminal cases indeed. And speaking of busy, the Department of Justice has been very busy with its investigation into 2020 election interference, issuing at least 40 subpoenas to people in Trump's inner circle, executing a search warrant, on Mike Lindell, and we're also learning details that Jeff Clark, a lawyer from the Department of Justice, low-level person who tried to help the coup, we learned that he's also being investigated criminally uh, for conspiracy in connection with his uh, DC bar uh, case that's taking place. We learned those details. And the January 6th committee is set to resume public hearings at the end of the month, so big news there. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, with all the Trump news, this hasn't really been covered that much and it needs to be covered here because the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in favor of Greg Abbott and Ken Paxton that social media platforms cannot moderate its content in a ruling that really turns the First Amendment upside down and will lead to more messages of hate and medical disinfo and Russian propaganda and frankly chaos, just as MAGA Republicans wanted when they passed that uh, law in Texas. And more disturbing details are being learned about Ron DeSantis's human trafficking scheme of Venezuelan asylum seekers, where he literally had an individual like find him, herd him into an airplane from Texas, of all places, not even Florida, send him to Martha's Vineyard. What is the criminal or civil or administrative exposure here. Michael Popak and I will break it down. The most consequential legal news. This is, of course, legal AF. Michael Popak, I'm Ben Micellis. How are you doing, Michael? I'm great. I got so um, viscerally angry during some of your opening about some of the stories that we're going to talk about that I started to literally sweat. People that are watching are like, why is Popak sweating? Like it's like the adrenaline started pumping so quickly in advance of our breakdowns that I literally started to perspire. That's how pissed off, you know, we are. But we'll channel it right into the breakdowns and the analysis that everybody comes here to listen, listen to. Yeah. And look, one of the sayings, of course, we repeat here on the show, the wheels of justice move slowly, but they move towards justice and the arc is always towards justice. But on that road towards justice, uh, lots of roadblocks on the way, lots of nails and lots of uh, potholes, potholes, all that. <laughs> um, that is definitely part of the journey. Um, and let's talk about that journey. So the Department of Justice has filed its uh, motion with the Court of Appeals. It's actually not technically the actual appeal, right? It's the motion for stay pending the more fulsome appeal that will be filed. Um, what the Department of Justice realizes, I think, is that any appeal is going to just take a significant time to work its way through the 11th Circuit. And really what they're after is emergency 
urgent relief here, um, especially as it just relates to these 100 classified documents that were obtained during the August 8th search of Mar-a-Lago. And the motion that they filed with the 11th Circuit comes after Judge Eileen Cannon, the district court judge, denied basically the same motion um, that was filed in her court where the Department of Justice said, look, Judge Cannon, you're you're wrong on everything, but whatever. Like the most urgent <laughs> issue here is these 100 classified documents because there's real irreparable harm to the national security interest at stake. There's real irreparable harm to our criminal investigation at stake. And there could be no claim that Donald Trump owns those records, the classified records. Frankly, there could be no claim he owns the thousands of other records. And frankly, to the extent there was personal records intermingled within the overall records, that search warrant 101, we're allowed to have it. But fine, you want to waste everyone's time with all that other junk with a special master. We know we're going to prevail, but fine, waste everybody's time. But with those 100 classified records, there can be no claim. In fact, Donald Trump made no claim. In the legal papers, Trump never claimed these are documents that I own. He never claimed he declassified those records, even though classification, again, is still not an element of the crimes he's being committed, he's being charged with. But he never claimed that those were his. He never claimed he declassified. He never said they're personal records. So the Department of Justice told Judge Eileen Cannon he's not even claiming them. There's no finding. There's no affidavit, yet alone an actual finding that they belong to him. So you can't just say, oh, let's just give it to a special master and let's join us, the executive branch, from literally looking at our own documents. Those are our documents. They, they can't belong to him by the very existence of the way our government is set up. Like This isn't a complicated question. And Judge Eileen Cannon denied that request. Uh, she appointed Judge Raymond Deary, a quasi-retired federal judge. I say quasi, he's sitting on senior status in the Eastern District of New York, but a very well-respected judge. He was Trump's select, one of Trump's two uh, selections, but someone the Department of Justice said we'd be fine with if you ultimately selected Judge Deary. Um, and so we'll get into more of that, of course, in a little bit. But after Judge Eileen Cannon made that order, um, the day after the Department of Justice filed its motion for appeals with the 11th Circuit and basically said this is unprecedented 11th Circuit, like what she did um, is a violation of the most basic principles. This is the first time ever where a judge has said the executive branch can't look at its own documents. Um, Donald Trump hasn't even claimed he owns these documents. And they're asking the Department of Justice is asking the 11th Circuit, we need to look at these documents immediately and find we're okay. Have the special master go look at all those other documents. But with respect to these 100 classified documents, stop her order with respect to that. Allow us to get our records back. Allow us to pursue our investigation. Um, let's pause there on that part because Judge Raymond Deary, who is the special master, did issue an order. There's going to be a hearing that's taking place next week as well on Tuesday before that court. He invited the parties to submit an agenda. Um, but ultimately, Popak, if the 11th Circuit um, rules in favor here of the Department of Justice. All that would happen is is that the eleventh is that the those one hundred classified documents would be removed from the process that uh, that Judge Deary is engaging in, and Judge Deary would still continue the other part of the process. Popak, tell us what else is going on here. Yeah, 
Yeah, that was a good that was a good beginning of the breakdown, good outline for everything that's going on. Let's start with Judge Cannon. Boy, is she over her skis and just keeps doubling down on a misinterpretation. You know, people are starting to think it's intentional where she's trying to help her her patron, uh, Donald Trump, who put her in that position. And her analysis is really flawed, as we said last show. She starts off on the wrong foot in the choreography and never really catches up. Her wrong-footedness starts with her interpretation of the executive privilege. And once again, in their uh, doing exactly what they said they were going to do in the Department of Justice filing with the 11th Circuit for the stay, uh, replicating the papers they put in front of Judge Cannon, they said, first of all, the executive branch can't be denied the ability to look at executive documents. She's wrong on that. You and I giggled about that in our own Popak, my Salas giggling way about two or three episodes ago when I raised the issue of it's the executive branch. How could you deny the executive branch looking at the executive privileged documents? And um, she's she is uh, got her self. Uh, Judge Cannon has herself wrapped around her axle related to that analysis because she's wrong about the executive privilege application. She's also wrong about how things work in the criminal justice system and the rights of a person who's been the subject of a search warrant, whether he's a criminal target or she's a criminal target or otherwise, because even in her 10 page opinion, which I know you read, and we're kind of breaking down for our listeners and followers now, Judge Cannon says, yeah, well, you know, I'm concerned that even informal mechanisms that, that uh, former President Trump used to find out what exactly was um, picked up in the search warrant and what was the actual list of things. I'm like, you know, criminal targets and people that are subject to search warrants don't get that from the federal government at this, at this stage of an investigation. They don't get to know every detail of everything and having it re-revealed to them as part of the beginning of a criminal process. But she is not only bending over backwards, she's contorting herself into like a balloon animal, like, you know, you know, in terms of contortionists to come up with a way to give Donald Trump what he wants, which is a delay, delay, delay. Eventually, whether it was the Department of Justice or now Ray Deary, and I'll, and I'll move to Ray Deary in a minute, somebody's going to be looking very quickly, although not as quickly as the Department of Justice wants, at these 100 documents, these classified documents, these 48 empty folders and what they mean, and not only look at them, because the Department of Justice, as we've said in prior shows, has already looked at them. It's the aspect of her order that they're so concerned about is, is that she has handcuffed and shackled the Department of Justice from progressing their investigation by taking those documents and following them where they lead in talking to, to witnesses, in finding out if there's other documents sitting in other repositories that Trump owns, other hotel properties, other, other homes, other airplanes where documents may exist, and just doing what investigators do, which is drill down all the way until the investigation is exhausted about witnesses, documents, and in here, here the compromise of national security. She clarified uh, which is sort of a small win for the Department of Justice, Judge Cannon in her 10-page order, she clarified that you can, Department of Justice, you can continue your investigation. You just can't use the documents and reveal their contents to anybody while you're doing it, but don't stop your investigation. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, to rip away the very evidence that they've, uh, a search warrant evidence that they've, they've, uh, they've uh, captured and, and take that away from them effectively from 
progressing their investigation is just wrong. And then, you know, she tried to answer some of her critics in her 10 page order because she knows she's taking heat here. She tried to answer them by saying, I am mindful that it's extraordinary for a judge to, to step in with jurisdiction into an ongoing criminal investigation this way. But given the extraordinary um, impact on this particular criminal defendant, a former president, and these unprecedented events, I feel I must. And I'm not just going to accept the Department of Justice at face value when they tell me the top secret things are top secret. And I'm going to let the special master work his, work, his, um, work his business. She gave the Department of Justice one other small victory. She told uh, Deary in instructing the special master, do the first, do the hundred of the 11,000 documents that you and your team are going to look at. I want to talk about that in a minute too, about a a sitting federal judge who's, who's, who has active cases and how he's going to be able to get through 11,000 pages with his staff. We'll talk about that in a minute. But she's, she told him in a revised instruction, Judge Deary, special master, do the first 100 documents that the government claims are classified first before you get to the other 11,000. The Department of Justice implored the judge because of the irreparable harm caused by their inability to assess with the intelligence community the damage or impact on national security and defense because of the um, documents that were retained by sticky fingers trump has asked to have all that review done by the special master by mid-october you know pre-midterms uh just conveniently judge cannon picked uh ben what's the date judge cannon picked for which uh for which thing for Judge Deary to complete his work, uh, November third, November thirtieth, after the midterm elections. So she just kind of went out of her way wherever she could to kind of throw a little help, give a little love to her, to Donald Trump. Now, the good news for all of us, and I, I know in one of your hot takes, trending takes, you talked about it. Judge Deary is the real deal. I had some concerns because of his involvement with the Carter Page surveillance things, but his body of work over 30 or 40 years, including as the chief judge of the Eastern District of New York. And I want to give our followers and listeners a little bit of um, understanding of the Eastern District of New York. We talk a lot on the show about the Southern District of New York, which is Manhattan, Eastern District in Brooklyn. And, you know, he, he was and is admired as a gentleman, no-nonsense judge who had an amazing uh, track record as a fair and honest jurist. Um, and right through, right through, right through till today, even though he's been on senior status for the last 11 or 12 years. Now, look, I like the fact that he's not resigning his status and he remains a judge, which means he's subject to the rules, the judicial canons related to ethics. I like that. He's not just citizen Deary, which is what I feared when they were going to hire him originally. And you and I were dead on two or three episodes ago when I said, Paul Huck Jr. being proposed by the Trump side was obviously a way for them to get to the middle and have the judge pick Judge Deary because Huck was definitely not qualified for this particular role other than being married to somebody in the 11th Circuit. And that happened. Everybody kind of coalesced around Judge Deary. The Eastern District of New York, Ben, is known and has been known for quite some time as being sort of a maverick uh, department within uh, the federal courts of New York. And what I mean by that is the following. There are two judges, kind of lions of the, of the bench, that have served um, and served uh, the Eastern District well, but are known as mavericks. One of them was Jack Weinstein, 
who recently died, unfortunately, but was on the bench for over 50 or 60 years. And he was a no-nonsense guy. I appeared in front of him. You know, he took on the government on a regular basis. He took on criminal justice and criminal sentencing on a regular basis and and just kind of set the course for the Eastern District. And Judge Deary, a friend of, of Jack Weinstein's, you know, was cut from that same cloth. So I like the fact that there's a courtroom in Brooklyn not in Fort Pierce, Florida, that is now handling the most sensitive issues here on a very fast track, as you mentioned at the top of the show, there's gonna be a hearing early next week. He's asked the lawyers, Judge Deary has asked the lawyers to propose an agenda, and he'll set his own, of course, about how he gets from here till November 30th, focusing first on the first hundred. And I, I assume one of the issues is what documents ultimately are going to go back to the Trump team that he's going to be able to show them. The Department of Justice is going to argue none of them, certainly none of the top secret or classified documents should ever be shared. It should all be with the judge, special master in camera. The 11th Circuit, we're going to have to sit and wait for the wheel to spin and see which three judges of the three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit hearing the motion for stay are going to, be, are going to get pulled, reminding everybody that six out of the 11 people on the 11th Circuit six out of 11 were picked by Trump, not just Republicans, Trump. So he really has dominated the Fifth Circuit and the 11th Circuit, which is why all of the cases we talk about that we don't like come out of the Fifth Circuit, and the 11th Circuit. Now, if we're lucky, we'll get some moderates in there, you know, out of the other five, but we're gonna get probably two, at least one, but probably two Trump appointees hearing this case on the stay. And then if that goes wrong for the Department of Justice, then it's going to be an expedited or an attempt to get an expedited appeal to um, the uh, Supreme Court. And again, it's going to be another uh, member of the Supreme Court we don't like, one of their far right wing that sits over the 11th Circuit. It's not one of the moderate Democrat appointees um, on the uh, in, on the uh, minority. It's going to be one of the majority who's going to handle that appeal up from the 11th circuit. But let's see, let's see, you and I will talk about it. We're gonna know in a couple of days who the panel is. You'll be able to do a trending take. We'll be able to talk about it in detail in one of our shows. But that's where we are. And I think, I'll just add my part of the contribution this way. Judge Cannon is dead wrong about the application of executive privilege. She's dead wrong about the bending over backwards on the rights of Donald Trump because of this unprecedented. The Department of Justice shouldn't be penalized because the person who committed the potential crime and did all these bad things happens to have been, you know, the former president at the time he did it. You know, that's setting a new set of rules. That's not impartial. That's not fair. Impartial and fair means you treat him like the dime store guy who sticks up a gas station or commits a federal crime. And you don't treat him any differently because justice and lady justice is supposed to be blind. Cannon has lifted up the blindfold. She knows exactly who's in front of her and all of her rulings uh, flow from that. You know, Popak, the real unprecedented aspect of the, you know, of the, there's, there's so many aspects, but the, the idea that a federal judge would be enjoining uh, the Department of Justice from doing what they do, stopping the FBI from their role of investigating crimes that could kill Americans. Like that is the most dangerous aspect of her ruling. This isn't some like legal theoretical thing. The FBI is doing work here with top secret sensitive compartmented information where 
humans, uh, human source information is out there and people are getting killed. And the judge is saying, let's wait until November and just go through this process here because not because Donald Trump is actually even claiming those documents belong to him, but because he's claiming they're around other documents which may belong to him. And this is all just so confusing and it's a big mess and he's and, and his reputation could get hurt. And so let look, let's just give it to a special master. Like when I say it like that, that's actually what her ruling is, is saying Two, what the Department of Justice, I think, is most worried. And you hit the nail on the head here about the Judge Deary process is not Judge Deary. They're confident there. And I think what they were thinking about in terms of whether or not to even appeal was the following issue. And and, and this is what you talked about, Popak. Donald Trump and his lawyers involvement in getting the documents and being a part of the process, the mere prospect of that, of a criminal target commandeering the ship of a criminal investigation or just even being involved in that is so anathema to what law enforcement functions are in this area. I think that was when they waited on balance. They said, no matter what, we've got to file this with the 11th Circuit because we can't even have the risk of Trump being involved in that process whatsoever. But but going back to your point, Judge Deary is the right judge for this. And and I, I think that the ultimate outcome here is going to be favorable for justice. It's just going to delay and delay. And here's the miscalculation. I can say it now because the process is too far along for me to actually give Trump the legal idea and the decision he should have made, um, because I think he made a stupid legal blunder here, actually, by requesting the special master. If you have Judge Eileen Cannon in your pocket, Popak, why ask her to appoint a special master? Why not just ask her as the judge? to do an in-camera review if she's already exerting extraordinary powers that she doesn't even have to begin with, why would you ask her to then ask somebody else to make the recommendation back to her? Now, normally these cases where you'll have the special master is where the judge is the person who's actually overseeing the criminal case itself, perhaps like a Judge Reinhardt. Or if the criminal case were to actually be filed, so the judge can't unring the bell or unsee documents that they've seen if the judge shouldn't see, for example, attorney-client privilege documents, which are where special masters usually come in. If the judge overseeing your criminal case sees a privileged document he shouldn't see, that could be held against you and hurt your rights. But as we saw in the Central District of California, for example, with the John Eastman case, which he filed to stop the January 6th committee from getting his documents, Judge Carter is actually doing an in-camera review. Judge Carter didn't say, hey, I need a special master. Judge Carter's a federal judge. It would be like Judge Carter appointing a special master. So here, Popak, the one thing that I just don't fully understand from a strategic standpoint, and this is good. And it's too late for my for what I just said to change or impact anything, which is why I can say it now. But that's the part about it, which I think is a big uh, strategic blunder. By, by I, I, I have an answer. That's a that's a very, very good and concise observation and comparing it to Judge Carter. I'll give you the answer. I'll give you my answer. One, um, remember, Trump had a 
shifting combination of lawyers, most of them unqualified, until he got the current team of Trusty and Chris Kice. And we'll talk about Chris Kice in a minute. He of the new $3 million retainer paid by the Save America PAC. We'll talk about that as we get into the in other investigations. But until he got Chris Kice, and who left Foley and Lardner, his law firm, in order to set up the law firm of Chris Kice, whose number one client is Donald Trump after uh, uh, two weeks ago, he had, you know, he had a clown car filled with lawyers that we've that we've talked about ad nauseum um, and rightfully uh, cri critiqued and criticized, including Christina Bob, um, Alina Haba, the guy up the road on 95 Fort Lauderdale Ticketin, who went to uh, uh, military academy with Trump. This was the clown car that was making decisions. So they finally hired trustee and then brought in Chris Kice after they had already made the filing that you talked about asking for special master. So their knee jerk reaction of sort of inexperienced lawyers was let's throw a monkey wrench. Let's ask for a special master. And when they filed that, I'm not sure they had already had Cannon assigned to the case because they had to make a filing. Yes, they wanted Cannon. They went up to Fort Pierce, Florida, which most people haven't heard of in the upper barren reaches of the Southern District of Florida, um, you know, 130 miles away from Miami, just to give a point of reference, and filed it hoping to get her, got her, but wasn't sure they were going to get her. And then I think even they have been um, amazed at her superpowers that she's decided that she has to overcome precedent, constitutional analysis, and, you know, a, a body of Supreme Court case law, starting with U.S. v. Nixon, or Nixon v. GSA. And they're like, wow. And now to your point, if we had known she was going to be that much in our favor, these new lawyers, yep. they they may not have asked the special master. They'd be like, we're fine with Cannon. Judge Cannon, federal judge, take a look at all those documents. But I think it's because he, you know, he changed his lawyers so frequently, and most of them were incompetent in the beginning until he got the current team that's not bad, including led by Chris Kice. Um, and then what did you think about the reporting, Ben, that Chris Kice very smartly, because of all the people that have gotten uh, stiffed by Donald Trump, asked for and got a $3 million retainer paid by the Save America PAC, which itself is under federal criminal investigation as a fraud. So the fruits of a fraud are in his escrow account. What did you think about that? And what do you think happens to $3 million if the Department of Justice decides to go after it? I think it's a lot of money. I think <laughs> that, you know, and I think that, and I think that that's, you know, what uh inspires a lot of those people to become traitors to the united states of america and that's something that chris Kice is going to have to live with you know and you have the right to, you know as a criminal defense lawyer i don't knock you for representing people who could be accused of crimes so but but here having knowledge that the Save America PAC is under criminal investigation for its role in trying to overthrow our democracy. There are places where I think criminal defense lawyers need to draw lines and the very essence of our democratic system, overthrowing our democracy, taking funds from an entity that you know is a target in a criminal investigation or could become a target in the criminal investigation. But, you know, in MAGA Republican world, grifting money talks um and and overthrowing our democracy let, let me, is the side effect let me make one more point about that connected to florida the reason that chris Kice had to take the three million dollar pay fee payment 
retainer payment from the Save America PAC is because of what you and I reported about a couple of episodes ago, a couple of podcasts ago. The Republican National Committee has cut off publicly, cut off uh, Donald Trump from having his legal fees paid related to Mar-a-Lago. That's public. Rona, Dan- Rona McDaniels, Mitt Romney's niece, who heads the RNC, made that publicly. If you, if you fight that, you're doing that on your own dime. Trump's running out of dimes, personal dimes. He might be real estate rich, but he looks like he's cash poor. And he's using, and Chris Keist knows he's using. I've, I know of a very famous case from 10 or 15 years ago where the Department of Justice went after a criminal, a well-known, well-respected criminal defense lawyer in Miami. I won't mention his name because I don't want to I don't want to dirty it any further because it wasn't right what the Department of Justice did. But they went after this particular guy who, who was Mount Rushmore of criminal defense lawyers in Miami over the very issue of the retainer he took for a fee and whether it was tied to an illegal operation and he should have forfeited it. And they also you know, went after him in a hearing. Eventually, it came out OK. But the Department of Justice can, at the appropriate time, seek civil forfeiture of a lawyer's retainer amount if they have good evidence, proper evidence, that the lawyer knew or should have known that that money was tainted. I'm not ready. I'm not sure the Department of Justice does that just yet, because that's another thing that plays into Trump's hands related to him being, you know, his persecution complex. But it's something you and I will watch since it's so public where Chris Keiss's retainer came from. Oh, absolutely. And speaking about tainted, the Trump organization um is tainted because it's engaged in criminality its entire existence (laughs) and the chickens are finally coming home to roost in manhattan uh what we have going on there is the criminal trial which we previously reported um where the trump organization is a criminal defendant Uh, that trial begins october 24th um trump organizations tried to delay it a number of times the manhattan judge just said okay i get you're trying to delay it just No, it's going to trial. Uh, One of the things that also the Trump organization wanted to argue there is that there was selective prosecution. You know, oh, they're coming after us for political reasons. The judge isn't allowing that to come in as part of pretrial motion. So stay tuned. I mean, the Trump organization as a criminal defendant is a big deal. That's the case where Alan Weisselberg, the CFO of the Trump organization, has previously pled uh, guilty and he will be testifying at that trial. Um, Likely Donald Trump's going to be called and he's going to take the fifth at that trial. Um, We'll keep you posted there. And then New York Attorney General Tish James looks ready to file uh, a civil lawsuit against the Trump. That's and it's a civil lawsuit because that's really the the only power she has here with respect to the investigation here. she's uh, doing on Trump, yeah. inflating valuations and engaging in fraud with respect to the insurance companies and investors and the taxes that he pays and just what he declares as the values of his various properties, shape shifting them depending on uh, the situation. Um, that's the case where Donald Trump was recently deposed and pled the fifth like hundreds of times. Him pleading the fifth, we've talked about this before on the podcast, is an adverse inference, meaning it can literally be used against him, unlike in a criminal case where you can't use Fifth Amendment invocations against the criminal defendant. Here you can say, look, Donald Trump pled the fifth. That in a civil case shows that um, the reason that he's not answering is because he has a guilty conscience or a guilty mind. And if he answered that question, it would prove our case. Um, and this was an interesting part of it, too. Um, 
One that she's also looking to go potentially sue other Trump family members, um, but that according to reports, the Trump organization is trying to settle the case. And Tish James says, no, I'm not settling this case. Um, And they're probably not settling it for anything meaningful, you know, knowing how cheap the Trumps are. But just interesting that they're trying to settle that case. Yeah, two value adds on both of those stories. One, the judge in the Trump organization trial, Judge Juan Mershon, very well-respected member of the New York State Supreme trial-level court. He's also the same judge who's been assigned the Bannon indictment, which is a co-prosecution of the New York Attorney General's Office Public Integrity Unit, because Tish James as Attorney General does have some criminal powers, just not for the Trump Organization civil investigation she's doing. And uh, just interesting, the judge, uh, they pulled a bad judge, the Trump the Trump people did, with, with Juan Mershon, and so did Bannon uh, in that case. Secondly, the um, the uh, Trump Organization investigation, pardon me, Ben, is just to remind everybody who thinks, who thought, I don't think they think any longer that Merrick Garland was moving too slow, is three and a half years in the making. That's how long Tish James has spent investing the Trump, investigating the Trump Organization um, and, and Donald Trump and the children related to the loan inflation issue. This is personal to them. This is a civil case. It'll be against Donald Trump when it's filed. And, and I, the reporting has been at least one of his children. If I had a guess, and I want to hear Michael Cohen's view on this, I think it's Eric, just because of the involvement on certain of these issues. It's the one that would be closest to loan lending for the Trump organization and borrowing money and who signed most of those documents. I don't know why I think it's Eric, but I think it's Eric. We'll find out. And this, and the reason this came back into the press is because there's been reporting that the that the Trumps have tried to reach out to Tish James to try to settle this case. She's up for re-election, by the way, and she's looking good for re-election. But she's in the midterm time period being re-elected in November. There's no way she's settling this case before. And what could happen to the to Trump in this in the civil side? His, his he and his companies could be barred or limited from uh, conducting business out of the state of New York. The Trump Organization has worldwide holdings, but they operated out of New York. It, w- it would force them to leave New York and um, uh, or uh, anything that touches New York, they'd be heavily regulated. Civil fines, which could run into the millions and millions of dollars. And then, as you and I talked about many, many podcasts ago, it has a ripple effect if they get, can, if they get charged, uh, or sorry, the civil suit is filed against them and they lose that civil suit or even when it's filed, they have to disclose that to all of their lenders, and it can trigger certain covenants within the lending documents that back up on the Trumps and trigger personal liability on all of those loans, because you're going to have to disclose as a material development that you've been charged with a civil fraud in a case by the New York State Attorney General's office. Lenders aren't going to like that. They might start calling their loans or require more collateral to be put up. It will have a devastating impact on the Trump business world if this happens, not just paying fines and having to find a new place to to ply your trade. Yeah, that's why he needs to uh, steal our top secret sensitive compartment and information <laughs> so he can sell it Second to his, so he can sell it to the foreign <laughs> country. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's true though. I mean, that's that that those are the issues. That's that's why this is incredibly frightening. You know, when you hear that Jared Kushner gets two billion dollars from the Saudi Arabian sovereign wealth fund and Jared Kushner's not a wealth manager. He has, he does has to run a private equity company. You just give him $2 billion. 
um, you know, it, it raises it raises serious questions. You know, one of the reasons Trump was in Virginia recently, apparently as well, he was in D.C. You know, he was setting up another live golf tournament for the Saudis and the Saudis were recently at Bedminster and um, you know, and Trump does the interviews where he spreads 9-11 conspiracies. Oh, is you know, that why he was golfing in his golf shoes off the plane with a bunch of people and not playing golf? They were was, organizing uh, there, that. There, there, there's yeah. there's probably much more to it. But one of the things was apparently gearing up for another one of the Saudi live events. But, but there's that looked like it, right out of uh, Tony Soprano. I mean, you, it, you know, what's it, funny about the, that. You know, what's funny about the mob thing? The and I'll link it back to Judge Deary. Judge Deary's also handled a number out of Brooklyn, as you can imagine, a number of mafia cases. He's the one the, that judge. I don't know if you remember this, Ben. There was a very famous head of the Genovese crime family in New York who decided for years that he would avoid prosecution by acting as if he was mentally ill. He used to wear dirty pajamas and a robe and and slippers and walk up the streets of Brooklyn and little italy mumbling to himself uh, in reality he was behind the scenes as the mastermind of the entire genovese crime family he eventually got prosecuted and convicted in judge deary's courtroom that's what this looked like this looked like you know look, trump looks like he's this far away from wearing dirty pajamas and a uh, and a bathrobe trying to act like he's not in his right mind while he's really running the whole thing like kaiser sozi you know I, I know, you know, like one thing I wanted to mention too, just about Judge Deary, this is what I like. He moved very quickly. He set yeah. a hearing right away. So I, I just want to kind of reassure people. I do feel good about Judge Deary. If this case was assigned to Judge Deary and not Judge Cannon, somehow, if it was there to start, this would never be happening. But it's a good person for that to be in front of. Anyway, the Department of Justice has been very, very busy with its uh, criminal investigations as well into the 2020 election interference, issuing at least 40 subpoenas. Some people who received the subpoenas also include Stephen Miller, one of Trump's top former political aides, Brian Jack, one of Trump's former top uh, political aides as well. Um, and in addition, a search warrant was executed uh, on Mike Lindell, the pillow guy. Apparently, Mike Lindell was leaving a uh, Hardee's. It was originally reported as an Arby's, but it's a Hardee's in Minnesota. Um, and as part of that search warrant, the FBI uh, seized his phone. And look, Mike Lindell was literally the pillow guy. This just goes to remind you of the world of MAGA Republicans. Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, was there before January 6th, after January 6th, remember he was leaving the White House around January 15th with documents that said martial law on them and uh, with documents that said appoint Cash Patel as uh, acting C head of the CIA. That's why he received uh, a search warrant for that and for um, more reasons there. Um, but a flurry of activity there as well. And then we've, of course, known about the investigation that the Department of Justice has been doing into Jeff Clark. Jeff Clark used to work at the Department of Justice. He was a lower level environmental lawyer who tried to uh, literally become the attorney general. 
by helping draft a memo that he wanted the Department of Justice to send on official letterhead to states telling them to overturn the results of the election. And fortunately, the acting DOJ leadership basically said to Trump, we're all going to resign and just make you look like a fool if you give this Jeff Clark any power at all. And when you confront Donald Trump like an adult and you speak to him and you say, listen, mother, you know, shut up. Donald Trump backs down. You know, uh, the Republicans can't do that. They're just such chicken shits that they can't stand up to the person. But when you do confront him, he always backs down because that's his personality. He's he's a typical kind of bully personality that you just got to confront him. Um, but in any event, remember, Jeff Clark had the search warrant that was served at his house. The search warrant was executed back in June. Remember, he walked out in his uh boxer shorts. And we're learning additional information there as well that I think is important to the overall investigation the Department of Justice is conducting. And we learned this information because Jeff Clark was asking the D.C. bar, which is seeking to revoke his law license. Jeff Clark was telling the D.C. bar, just hold off on your investigation because I can't I I can't speak to you pending the Department of Justice's investigation because I'm going to be likely invoking my Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. So I'm not able to speak to you you know, fully. And the crimes I'm being investigated for include obstruction and also conspiracy. And what was just interesting about the conspiracy account is you think, well, who is he in a conspiracy with? Who are his co-conspirators? Um, and Donald Trump. And, you know, what's interesting, of course, and we've talked about this in prior legal IFs with a conspiracy count is it doesn't actually require the commission of the crime. The conspiracy itself can be the planning and the plotting. You don't actually have to complete the act that you were intending to conspire to commit. And so as I think about Trump, who the co-conspirator, as I think about Clark, the co-conspirator would likely be Trump. And that to me would represent an escalation in what the DOJ has done, going from the low level, you know, insurrectionist to kind of the next level leadership and the violent people to the terrorist organizations like the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters and the Proud Boys. And now what I think we're going to see over the next kind of coming months is that real close Trump inner circle, people like John Eastman, people like Jeff Clark, people like Rudy Giuliani. And so stay tuned for that, Popeye. Yeah, let's just give the um, timeline here just so people get more patient. Three and a half years for Tish James to do her investigation. John Durham, who was a special prosecutor appointed by Barr to keep him in his seat after Trump got out, looking at Russian collusion, which has resulted in almost nothing in terms of prosecutions, thank God. And he's now wrapping up, but he's three years into his investigation. And Merrick Garland is not even two years into his investigation, already has over 700 convictions at the people that actually laid siege to the Capitol, the tip of the spear, but now going after all of those organizers. We know from prior reporting, there are at least three, if not four grand juries that are going on in the uh, under the Department of Justice's um, leadership in Washington, looking at Save America PAC, fake electors, the pressure on the vice president, and all of those things, the architects for all of those things were all the people that you've identified, John Eastman, Clark, Jeffrey Clark, um, a guy named Boris Ep Boris Epstein, another lawyer, another lawyer who's lost his phone to the Department of Justice in a search warrant um, 
uh, search warrant pickup last week. He's now, I think, if we're if you're playing the game at home, I think this is at least the sixth lawyer related to Trump who's lost his phone in a search warrant, which is a good thing for democracy. Um, and now you've got that in, in parallel. And everybody was a little bit up in arms about some reporting last week and about this internal, informal 60 day before an election rule and whether that was going to uh, grind the Department of Justice to a halt in their uh, in their prosecution. And the answer to that question is it isn't because this 40 plus subpoenas, which we know from reporting, the Department of Justice doesn't issue a, a press release and say, we just issued 40 subpoenas. It's because the people that receive the subpoenas go on places like Tucker Carlson and on other places and reveal that they've been subpoenaed. Tucker Carlson having gotten a copy of one of the subpoenas and and thinking it was he was doing his public service in revealing that. But, but all it did was give people like you and me and other legal commentators the ability to kind of get to the bottom of what's going on with the prosecution. I don't think because Donald Trump has not declared that he's running. He's not on the ballot at the midterms. Just because Republicans are on the ballot doesn't mean I I would think the Department of Justice would exercise discretion to stop the Jan 6 prosecutions and investigations because a midterm is coming up. That sounds silly. And it doesn't look like they're doing that at all. On top of that, we have reporting you know, Liz Cheney or the revenge of Liz Cheney is coming back to prime time really soon. They're going to be uh, the Jan 6 committee isn't stopping for any midterm issue. In fact, they want to get a preliminary report done before the midterms. They, they said they want to issue it in October with a final report in December. But they're going to be coming back for the I don't know if it's if it's the 10th hearing or the 11th hearing, but they're coming back uh, September 28th after the Jewish holidays and all with a um, with another hearing. We thought it was going to be done in July. And apparently the reporting is that in August, that Jan 6 committee spent an inordinate amount of time continuing their investigation with more cooperating witnesses, with more documents. And the list of people that the Jan 6 committee wants to bring uh, before them includes Ginny Thomas uh, on her on her role in the fake elector scheme and in, in, in stopping the peaceful transfer of power. Um, they want to bring uh, Steve Bannon again in. And there's others, a whole list of people. Vice President Pence will be invited to participate. And they also want to focus on something we haven't talked about in a while, Ben, which is the application of the 25th Amendment to remove the president, which, which certain cabinet members discussed in earnest after Jan 6th and before he left office on Jan 20, in that 14-day interstitial period, there were cabinet members that wanted to, to get enough majority votes with the vice president to remove the president and take him out of office, you know, clinging on to his to, his, to the resolute desk in the, in the Oval Office if they had to. And they want to get to the bottom of the 25th Amendment. So cabinet members are have been interviewed or will come before the committee. And we might see the results of that when when Midas, the Midas Media Network covers the new uh, uh, Jan, uh, September 28th hearing. Here's my prediction. January 6th committee is going to focus on three more areas of inquiry. The first major area, as you said, the 25th Amendment and the cabinet wanting to remove Donald Trump from office based on his um, actions, inactions, and being a traitor to the United States of America. And I think we'll have a hearing that focuses on that. Two, I think we're going to be focused on all of the efforts of obstruction from things being deleted, logs being shredded, 
text messages being destroyed yeah. and so, yeah. all of, and all of those efforts tell a very damning tale in and of itself that to me is worth a, you know one of the nuggets of the stories and, that they and tell. secret serve and the secret service correct although you know the one positive development on the secret service is since biden's appointed a new head of the secret service uh there's been a lot more forthcomingness of documents being turned over, not to say that documents haven't been destroyed, but they are getting a lot more text messages and a lot more documents than they previously got before. Who knew that when you remove the corrupt people and replace them with people who actually follow the law, that that happens. And the third category, I think the January 6th committee is going to focus on is the continuing efforts of the attempts to overthrow our democracy today. These ongoing efforts are taking place each and every day right now and those efforts exist at at every level it never stopped the 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 lawsuits that the MAGA republicans are filing the attempts to incite violence um the spreading of disinformation literally trying to spire additional insurrections i mean heck even the new york post of all places just did an op-ed today that basically said to trump stop inciting violence um, you know, it's not enough for them to say that and then spread all the other disinfo they do in the New York Post. But, you know, you know, he every single day he goes on his social media platform, he spreads QAnon conspiracies like he, he posts 100 times in the morning before noon. Like who like and always point and all his posts are election disinformation and memes that spread lies and inciting people to violence and mocking people. It's like a horrific, insane asylum, fascist cosplay well, circus that this man he's, un- he's unemployed. He's got a lot. He's an unemployed retiree in Florida. He's got a lot of time on his hands. Still want to talk about Popak, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that's going to have a big impact on social media platforms, which will undoubtedly be appealed. And Ron DeSantis, what type of liability will can he be facing? Is it likely that he's going to actually be prosecuted for uh, any crimes? First, I want to tell everyone, though, this is a big news. So everyone's been asking, can you do Wheels of Justice merch at Legal AF? And we've got it. At store.midastouch.com, we've just made, we've listened to you. We spent a long time designing it. We talk about the wheels of justice here. Get your wheels of justice long sleeve tee at store.midastouch.com. That's store.midastouch.com. The wheels of justice long sleeve tee. Show the world that you are a legal AFer, a Popakian with the wheels of justice long sleeve tee at store.midastouch.com. Also, uh, Midas Touch now has a Patreon account. If you want to support independent media, we're not funded by billionaires or millionaires. In fact, we have not a single outside investor. We are fueled by democracy and powered by you. So if you want to become a member at any of the tiers that we have, just go to P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash Midas Touch. You can get access to exclusive podcast features. You could become a producer of the Midas Touch podcast and have your name even appear on the podcast. You can get postcards for me and my brothers. But I think most importantly, you can help support grow this network. That's patreon.com slash Midas Touch. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that Michael Popak and I are practicing 
lawyers. And I think that's what adds to the show as well. And so, you know, the the cases that we handle tend to be, you know, on my end, catastrophic personal injury cases. So cases that involve death or people being so severely injured, if a loved one or anyone got into such a severe incident, that's the kind of thing that I handle. Um, so you can reach out to me and very kind of high level, complicated, you know, business disputes or disputes involving founders, or we also do sexual harassment cases or sex assault cases and, and, and molestation cases for victims. And so if you know a victim of any of that type of conduct, um, you can reach out to me and Michael Popak. My email is ben at midastouch.com and Popak's email is m Popak, M-P-O-P-O-K at Z-P law.com mpopak at zplaw.com and we'll do our best to get back to you as promptly as we can and let you know if you've got a case and all consultations of course are free michael popak i want to talk about this net choice llc versus ken paxton case which was appealed to the fifth circuit after net choice is a consumer is a group that represents it's a collective that represents the social media companies um and when ken paxton passed this law i believe it was ahb 20 which was a texas statute that would regulate social media platforms and what the law purports to do is regulate platforms with more than 50 monthly active users so it was specifically targeting facebook and twitter and youtube um and the purpose of the law you know on on its face it claimed um that it prohibited large media platforms large social media platforms for censoring speech based on the viewpoint of its speaker um which really means what they were trying to do as twitter was removing people like donald trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene's account and others from spreading COVID disinfo and Russian propaganda and uh, inciting hate that those would be viewpoints and that those viewpoints should not be discriminated against by social media platforms. They should not have moderation policies. And so typically the First Amendment, typically meaning historically every other incident other than this, a private company has First Amendment rights and is treated as a speaker. And you can't in a capitalist society, right? I mean, that's how the Republicans believe in small government, have a government force a private company to speak a certain way. And as part of that prohibition on forcing them to speak a certain way, it followed naturally and legally, logically, that a company can say, a social media company should say, hey, if someone's saying things that promote Nazis, if someone's saying things that promote medical disinformation or engage in bullying and harassment or spreading Russian propaganda memes or inciting insurrections, we at our discretion are going to say that that person could be banned from our platform. And this law that was passed by Texas would allow people to get their attorney's fees and to sue the social media platforms. And it also has a series of very onerous reporting obligations for the social media platforms really designed to shut down the platforms. The district court in Texas found in favor 
of the social media platform collective group because that's the law. They have a First Amendment right to have moderation policies. Um, Ken Paxton appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals um, stayed the injunction that was in place by the district court, which stopped the law from going into effect. It was then appealed to the Supreme Court, which stopped the Fifth Circuit from in, from staying the injunction of the district court. So the law never actually went into effect until now, where you have the Fifth Circuit finally making this ruling um, that uh, social media companies can be bound by this law and that this law is a valid law and that social media companies can't engage in these moderation policies because according to uh, this ruling, that would violate the First Amendment rights of the people who want to be hateful on their platform and that we should view social media companies more like common carriers um, who are, um, you know, and, and allow people to speak hate on their platforms. Um, it's a really frightening ruling because even though it's in the Fifth Circuit, which just covers Texas, Louisiana and Mississippi, to comply with that ruling, um, the social media companies are going to have to, all the lawsuits will all emanate from Texas. And so the social media companies, if they don't win on appeal to the Supreme Court, and of course they're going to file an appeal, I mean, you know, could be, you know, could become again, you know, one of these repositories of, you know, all this filth and disgusting stuff, which frankly is exactly what uh, the radical MAGA people wanted to, you know, wanted to be. Um, I'll just read this one quote right now from the head of the Computers and Communications Industry Association, one of the other kind of trade groups that represents the businesses. Forcing private companies to give equal treatment to all viewpoints on their platforms places foreign propaganda and extremism on equal footing with decent internet users and places Americans at risk. God bless America and death to America are both viewpoints, and it is unwise and unconstitutional for the state of Texas to compel a private business to treat those as the same. And I finally, Popak, I want to just say this. What made me so upset about the ruling also is the level of gaslighting in the ruling as well. Because what the ruling says is we're trying to, this is what the ruling says. We, the Fifth Circuit, what we're trying to protect is the LGBTQ plus community and marginalized communities. And we don't want these tech companies discriminating against marginalized communities. What if a private company says, we disagree with your viewpoint of, of, of how you want to live your life and, and how you were born or, or any of that. And, and we don't want them to discriminate when it was exactly the opposite conduct that was at issue. It was not that. It was that the people were trying to target and attack LGBTQ+, other marginalized communities, minority groups, and spread disinformation. That's the part that was equally insidious and disgusting to me. Yeah. Uh, where do we start with this one? So we talked about the Fifth Circuit and the 11th Circuit usually being on the same side. Here they're not. The 11th Circuit looking at a very similar law that DeSantis passed to try to uh, to stop what's called deplatforming or censorship or moderation, which all of these large social media platforms 
um, generally have under the First Amendment a right to do that, to not have on their platforms hate speech, disinformation, and things that um, things that they find repulsive or what any normal American would find repulsive. Eleventh Circuit said that law, most aspects of it, which match Texas, is unconstitutional. It violates the First Amendment rights. Same same plaintiffs, same parties involved. The Fifth Circuit, well, three judges of the Fifth Circuit, so the Fifth Circuit, um, took the opposite view, actually counter to the Eleventh Circuit. So now we have what's called the good old-fashioned split of the circuits, which only gets resolved by one other higher court, which is the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, interestingly, as you said earlier, the U.S. Supreme Court already tipped its hand, maybe not on this on the merits of the S uh, of um, HB 20, the actual law, but they Roberts was able to get five votes to stop the law from going into effect pending an appeal uh, to the Fifth Circuit. And that's an in, it's an interesting combination. And I want to talk about it so that when more developments happen, our listeners and followers have a framework. The five to four decision by the Supreme Court not to allow HB 20 to go into effect pending the Fifth Circuit, which you just reported on, was Roberts, Amy Coney Barrett, um, Stephen Breyer, who's now, we know, stepped off, and Sonia Sotomayor, uh, and Brett Kavanaugh. That's the five. Uh, Kagan, who's usually very reliable, but on First Amendment issues, sometimes takes a different approach. She dissented. Alito dissented, so did Thomas, and Alito wrote a dissent. Now, Kagan didn't side with Alito. She wrote her own dissent for her own reasons. My gut is, when it comes back to the Supreme Court, Kagan will get off the sidelines and get off the wrong side of the case and move over to the right side of the case, maybe replacing one of the Republican appointees, but that ultimately this will... Uh, come back to the Supreme Court, and it looks like we may have the numbers on this. It would be the equivalent, Ben, if if the if the Midas store, the Midas merchandise store, was required to carry F Black Lives Matter or Let's Go Brandon, or it would be found to be a violation of the First Amendment by you not carrying that. It's really no different. The platforms may be larger, what they call the platforms, the Facebooks and the others of the world, but the analysis would be the same. And the one dissenting vote who was, who was a, just to show you how far we've come with how right, right-wing and extremist the Republican Party has been, that you don't even recognize Republicans that aren't from that generation anymore. Um, the, one dissenting, the one dissenting opinion was by a George W. Bush appointee. And he said that uh, Leslie uh, Southwick, he said, that the First Amendment protects moderation, moderating and curating by the platforms of other people's speech because the platforms have their own First Amendment right and they are akin to the press and to newspapers. First thing that Edith Jones and Judge Oldham, who's Oldham is a Trump appointee, and Edith Jones is so far right-wing extreme on that court, but was once considered to be a Trump nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court, she called the platform's position ludicrous that they had a First Amendment right and said, you are not, and Oldham, in his majority opinion, said the same thing, you are not the equivalent of a newspaper and your First Amendment, you're just a corporation and your corporation doesn't, doesn't have a freewheeling right 
to deny somebody else their First Amendment expression. I'm hoping, Ben, and we'll see what you think that if the about the Supreme Court's ultimate decision on this, because we have a split circuit and we've got a a decision uh, of a tremendous constitutional import. So we know the Supremes are going to get involved when they reopen for business in October. What are you what's your prediction on the Supremes? I think the Supremes are going to side with the 11th Circuit. They're going to agree that the uh, Texas law is unconstitutional. Um, and I, they're not going to do it there, I think, for, uh, you know, the reasons that we lie. I mean, if, if they could help out MAGA Republicanism, they would. The issue is, is that the MAGA Republicans have so contorted any philosophical string of, of what they're supposed to view, what, what what's their position. On the one hand, they view uh, in Citizens United opinion that corporations uh, are like people, you know, and corporations should be able to do whatever they want to do. And then on the other hand, where they perceive it as hurting MAGA Republicans, we need to intervene and shut down corporations. And that's just a sign, frankly, of like what dictators do, because ultimately when it helps me great, when it hurts me, you know, you know, whatever. But, you know, here I think that the Supreme Court's just going to say, if this law, the implications of this um, would be so actually harmful and detrimental to business generally. And so I think from the perspective of not their concern about the proliferation of hate speech, but more its broader implications of how it could affect other businesses, you know, I think is going to be at the core, even though they're not going to say that. And I think they're going to reject that Texas law and side I, with I agree with court. I, I agree with you. The The Fifth Circuit's decision basically tracks Alito and Thomas in their dissent. So we, we need to look at how how much power and influence Alito and Thomas's thought process has in caucus at the Supreme Court with getting Kavanaugh, who voted, who in effect voted against the bill already, Amy and Amy Coney Barrett back over to their side. But Kagan, again, is the one to watch because it was one thing for her on a motion to stay to decide whether, you know, on the not on the substance. But now when when the rubber meets the road, I think she lines up on the right side of this issue. And we know where Roberts, I think, stands. I think you're dead on, dead on right. I think the Supreme Court, well, but we'll have to see. It's going to be, you know, they'll have to take it up in October. You know, we won't know about it probably till the spring. There'll be a oral argument. You know, in the meantime, that law goes into effect. So we're going to have to, you know, we're at least two months, if not longer. And we know, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't like to get involved with Texas law. We saw it with SB8 and the abortion thing. They'll probably just let the law run until they make a final decision sometime in late 2023. We will keep you posted there. And finally, I want to talk about this horrific news out of Florida. Ron DeSantis uh, literally trafficking humans trafficking Venezuelan asylum seekers. The story was reported uh, the other day. I saw Martha's Vineyard was trending and I said, why is it trending? It's after Labor Day, usually quiet around. <laughs> it's, it's usually it's vacations usually, are over. <laughs> it's usually quiet around now. I mean, you know, no film festivals I'm aware of. Like, why would it be trending right now? And then I saw the story and I almost didn't believe it. And I thought it was like like a sick parody that was being spread. But then 
no, this was coordinated also where Fox News got the exclusive and humans, Venezuelan asylum seekers seeking a better life and trying to flee from the horrors of what they were experiencing in, in their country um, were shipped and herded onto planes and then shipped to Martha's Vineyard. They were told that there would be jobs waiting for them. And there, that was not the case. There was no coordinating with anybody at Martha's Vineyard when they arrived and they were just dumped there and then told to go. And then they were left and kind of just stranded. And then the people in Martha's Vineyard saw a group of Venezuelan asylum seekers there, a group of people they didn't know who they were. And these people didn't have food, they didn't have money, and they were just left there. It was as more facts emerged, we start learning that actually the individuals, the asylum seekers, never even were in Florida in the first place. And as more information emerged, uh, Ron DeSantis apparently sent literally at least one individual or maybe multiple individuals, but with the asylum seekers recommend, uh, continue to represent that an individual by the name of Perla approached them, promised them jobs and better wages in this other area. If they took this flight, um, lied to them, got them to go on an airplane and people who were desperate got on the airplane and went there. Um, and so literally DeSantis coordinated with someone there to, to kidnap people, put them on an airplane and then ship human beings to another state. And then DeSantis held a press conference. And when he was asked about it, because Florida does have a provision where they have a $12 million budget of, of, of bringing undocumented workers. Again, these are asylum seekers, but in any, it's horrific regardless of it. Um, moving undocumented workers to what they call sanctuary cities or just democratic cities to try to own it. Although I should also mention Massachusetts has a Republican uh, governor. Um, but setting all that aside, it turns out that what the law was, was that it has to be people in the state of Florida. And these individuals were never in Florida. And so what DeSantis said was, well, they could have come to Florida. They may have come to Florida. So a governor of Florida is going into other states and kidnapping human beings, asylum seekers too, nonetheless, who are then missing their court dates for their asylum, trafficking them to other states, dropping them off without food, shelter, water, or anything like that, placing their lives at risk. That's what took place. And people are asking, are there criminal implications involved and what else could happen to DeSantis? And look, this is one of the issues where are there criminal statutes at play? Yes. Do I think that Ron DeSantis is going to be prosecuted anytime soon? No. But this is just one of those things. Why? Because he's the governor of, of, of Florida. And when you're the governor of Florida, um, you know, there are all these ways to abuse our constitutional structure and um, and say, hey, I'm the governor of a state and, you know, and I was doing this to protect the state and I have state sovereignty, you know, and there's it'll get into all of those issues. But I actually do think if the public pressure mounted and DeSantis loses the election by a non-insignificant margin, I do think then there could actually be a criminal prosecution of him. I don't think as long as he remains the governor, there could ever be. Um, I don't think the Department of Justice would go there, even though they should. And they should absolutely open a, an investigation. Just the, the prospects of prosecuting a governor would be difficult. But if he is defeated, and this is a reason, and we're already hearing 
that the Venezuelan community in Florida is livid at this PR stunt by him. And if this impacts his election, I think that there could. And the statutes that I would just flag right here is the kidnapping statute, 18 U.S.C. 1201 kidnapping. Whoever unlawfully seizes, confines, decoys, kidnaps, abducts, or carries away and holds for ransom or reward otherwise any person. The person is willfully transported in interstate or foreign commerce, regardless of whether the person was alive when transported across state boundaries. So 18 U.S.C. 1201 um, seems to be a statute. And then the other one is 8 U.S.C. 1324, which criminalizes conduct that involves smuggling aliens into the United States, transporting aliens within the country or otherwise facilitating unlawfully present aliens to remain in the United States. Um, and then smuggled aliens may not necessarily be trafficking victims, but immigration crimes may be relevant to human trafficking activities that involve uh, facilitating aliens unlawful entry and presence. So to me, there's those two, you know, the trafficking and kidnapping. Um, but Popak, you have other thoughts too, because yeah. you know, these were asylum seekers. A couple of things. Let me talk about the politics. Having lived in Florida and South Florida for over 20 years, the Venezuelan community is very strong. Venezuelan American community is very strong. Those that vote, it, it is a large voting block in Broward, Fort Lauderdale, Miami-Dade County. There are cities in those places that are jokingly referred to as Little Little Venezuela or or different things that reflect the pop the makeup of a very hardworking, patriotic. Venezuelan American community. Charlie Crist running against DeSantis needs every vote he can get and needs to run up big margins in places like Miami-Dade County. Um, one of the reasons that Biden lost Florida is because while he won Broward and Miami-Dade County, he didn't win it by enough to compensate and offset um, places in the northern part and the central part of the state where he lost. In order for a Democrat to win Florida, you convincingly, you have to win in the I-4 corridor from Tampa to Orlando, which is increasingly becoming purple, moving to blue because of immigration. And you have to run up big numbers in Miami-Dade County because you're not going to win the North and you're not, you're not going to win. There's that bug again. You're not going to win the North of Florida. You're not going to win all the other counties that are like above Palm Beach County. So this, this could be a turning point if it's properly used by Charlie Crist and his people in that election. That's one. Two, the thing we haven't talked about yet, and I agree with you, the criminal prosecution is unlikely, although technically he looks like he may have violated these human smuggling criminal statutes that have been on the books. If you look at the literal definition and the terms that you used, it looks like this would comply. But there is a 14th Amendment constitutional due process issue, which is also implicated not just by Charlie, uh, not just by Ron DeSantis, because Abbott, the governor of Texas, did the exact same thing. He dumps off migrants in Washington, D.C., in front of the residence of the vice president, Kamala Harris, happened the same week, obviously in coordination with Charlie, with uh, Ron DeSantis. And the reason they chose Martha Vineyard is these are all Democratic vacation hotspots and enclaves, and they want to try to embarrass, um, you know, Democrats by having this happen. But at bottom, there are human beings who require constitutional dignity and due process, which have been violated. 
the 14th Amendment under a body of case law um, the Supreme Court recognized in 2001 called Zadvitas versus Davis said that if you're in the country already, whether you're an illegal alien or a migrant or whatever you are, but your feet are on terra firma of the United States, you are covered by the 14th Amendment against a deprivation of life, liberty and property without due process. What due process is happening to get these people uh, through? Um, through a subterfuge, through lying to get onto a plane, thinking they're heading for the better life, the golden door of the entry to U.S. immigration status. And they're being sent away from their lawyers, away from the people helping them with their immigration status, away from their families and support system, hundreds, if not thousands of miles away and dumped, literally dumped in an area without money, without shelter, as you say, without food, without dignity. They're being used as human props, and it would violate, in my view, and I'm sure the Department of Justice and its Civil Rights Division is looking at it. And I don't think they're going to be shy about bringing a case in a courtroom, a favorable courtroom, uh, against what, what you referred to, rightly so, as human trafficking in migrants for political optics. And I'll give you, I'll give you a, an example. At least one of the people that we know of from reporting that got brought against his will through through lies to get on the plane had a hearing hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Martha's Vineyard in Boston to meet with his lawyer to talk about his immigration status. That's 14th Amendment due process issues right there, Ben. How's he going to get there? Oh, he's going to use his trust fund? You know, the secret stash of money that all illegal immigrants seem to have in the in the Trump universe? you know, from their drug dealing or whatever, that's what he's going to use. No, he's that person has nothing. And whatever he had got stripped away from him by Ron DeSantis and Paul Abbott and anybody else that wants to do this shameful political optical scene for their own benefit. And hopefully it backfires politically the way we outlined. And somebody in the Department of Justice wakes up and brings a 14th Amendment claim on their behalf and, and this policy this now de facto policy of Abbott and DeSantis gets brought into a federal courtroom and shut down ASAP. Popak, when we started this podcast, you know, you said, wow, those topics, you know, are uh, got me sweating <laughs> a little got me sweating <laughs> a little bit, you know, but but because we're dealing with really, really, really serious issues and these issues, this cruelty, this right wing extremism didn't develop overnight right it was a concerted effort that's been pushed and pushed and pushed over a long period of time to remake this country in this very uh dystopian apocalyptic horrific way um but there is an opportunity to combat that and we don't want to wave the white flag and part of the show and part of the education is ultimately putting it into action because um, one of the issues that has allowed this horrible conduct to exist is uh, it's been able to fester in secrecy. And because it's been shrouded in the legalese, it's been hard to really access the information to confront it in the way it needs to be confronted. And that demystifying process is what we focus here on Legal AF to do so that we can combat it, 
we can stop it. We can educate you on what's going on and we can keep you posted as well on what the lawmakers, what the, you know, that what democratic lawmakers, pro-democracy lawmakers are doing to try to combat it versus what MAGA Republicans are doing to try to bring us back and to harm this country, what the Department of Justice is doing, what the FBI is doing, what other institutions are doing, um, you know, and to let you know what this process looks like. And so I think it's an invaluable experience here to be a part of this community together. And ultimately, that's what this is. This is a pro-democracy community. It's more than just some, you know, network. Make sure you do get that Wheels of Justice long sleeve tee at store.midastouch.com. Supplies are limited, so just get it now for the fall. Store.midastouch.com, the long sleeve Wheels of Justice long sleeve tee. And again, now would be the time also to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Become a member at one of the various tiers there, patreon.com slash Midas Touch. And again, if you want to reach out to me or Popak directly, my email is ben at midastouch.com and Michael Popak's is M-P-O-P-O-K at zplaw.com. If you have a case or you want us to take a look to determine if there may be a case. We'll see you next time as the wheels of justice move here on Legal AF. It's been so great sharing this weekend with you all. I'm Ben Micellis, joined by my co-host Michael Popak with, of course, a special shout out to the Midas Mike.